The following podcast contains explicit language. It's June 9th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So yesterday I talked about a ridiculous, seemingly ridiculous, court ruling in France where a rogue trader got back half a million dollars in bonuses, those lenient European courts. And I acknowledge that in America, the court system ain't perfect. Well, today an injustice was... You know what? Reversed isn't even the right word. It was at least acknowledged and no longer allowed to continue. Here's WXYZ Detroit Television with some details of the incarceration of Devante Sanford. The 23-year-old has been in prison since he was 14 years old after police said he had confessed to the murders of four people. The incredible part of this story is that two weeks after the four homicides on Runyon Street in Detroit, another man known as Vincent Smothers, a self-confessed hitman, admitted to numerous killings, including those four that sent Sanford to prison. Actually, the literally incredible part of the story was Devante's confession. He was 14. He was questioned without his mom. The police told his mom, don't worry. He's just giving us information that can help the case. Don't worry. You don't need a lawyer. Don't worry. Devante said a friend did the crimes. Then he said he did the crimes. He said he used a small caliber handgun. And yet two sets of casings were found including rounds from an AK-47. Here is Devante's mother, Taminko Sanford, telling a Michigan public radio reporter what happened after police charged her son. Because if you don't take this plea, Devante will never see daylight again. My baby never wanted to take the plea. He kept telling me, Mama, no, Mama, no. I forced Devante to take that plea. Now, that report was from 2013. In 2012, The New Yorker wrote about that case. And in that article, the author wrote about talking to Devante in 2011. Here's news coverage from 2009, February of 2009. So early, Devante Sanford, a developmentally disabled 16-year-old, sits in prison after his lawyers say he was coerced to confess to killing four people in a rumored drug house on Detroit's east side. Now, an admission from a confessed hitman could finally win him a new trial. Finally. It took more than seven years for that finally to come true. Devante clearly should never have been in jail. He never should have been interviewed without a parent, a lawyer, or at least a camera. And at least that last part is now standard procedure in Michigan, by the way. Even if we're so forgiving as to say the mistakes of the justice system happen, the justice system is a system of humans, humans make mistakes. It is a pernicious indifference to the truth that really grates. The roadblocks to justice amount to more than injustice. They're evil. This kid stayed in jail for eight years. This kid, this now adult, still developmentally disabled, no doubt stunted in ways we'll never comprehend. It is just unfathomable, except for the fact that it's so typical. Well, in the spiel today, I talk about who will be remembered in the same exalted way as we recall Muhammad Ali. But first, another who, a question for you. Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed his wife and children, say his daily prayers? Come on, I think you know the answer. It's the Papas. And the Papas and Fiddler on the Roof is on the mind of one current cast member of the Broadway show because he now understudies for the role his father embodied.
The production of Fiddler on the Roof that's currently on Broadway starring Danny Burstein is great. It's amazing. He's amazing. Awesome show. But it brings to mind several questions and resonances that maybe past productions didn't because it's book ended by, you see, a current Jewish person. It's actually Burstein without a skull cap and a parka in the beginning of the show. And then you see the same person at the end of the show. And I think the question it raises is questions of inheritance and questions of generations. So aside from the great singing and dancing and plotting, it raises some more meta questions. Now, mm. joining me now is Michael Bernardi. He plays Mortka, the innkeeper. And if you want to talk about generations and inheritances, this is the guy to do it with. His dad was Tevya for years and years on Broadway. His dad, Herschel Bernardi, was one of these great actors in the, well, his acting career was a long time, but in the 70s, he was in a lot of uh, TV shows. Uh, Michael Bernardi uh, crushes it as Mortka, <laughs> and he's here right now. Hey, Michael. Hi there. So... Your dad died when you were really, really young. Right? Yeah, I was about a year and a half. Do you have any actual me- – you can't have you- – I think you there's something what? called infantile amnesia, and it means that probably physically you can't have formed actual memories of them. You know, I choose to have one. Okay. And there is uh, some uh, scientific uh, evidence to, <laughs> uh-huh. to point that it's possible. But his smell, my mother, she kept his costume. And, of course, just different articles of clothing. Yeah. That was the one he kept. That was the most important role to him? Oh, absolutely. That's what defined him in so many ways. And that costume, every once in a while, my mom would take it out and and she'd smell it. And I remember at an early age kind of ruffling through uh, those boxes and not really knowing who it belonged to. But I would take certain articles and put it up to my nose and go – that's Papa. Yeah. And my mom would go, yep, that's Papa. That, I feel like that's what I remember. And maybe uh, he used to put me on his knee uh, before I could even sit up and uh, pluck out notes on a piano. And I think I remember a little blurry kind of thing about that. But ultimately, the rest has been puzzle pieces that I've been putting together my whole so- life. Of the triple threat that the actor, the Broadway actor should be, rank your singing, dancing, and acting. Well, me? For you, yes, yes. I grew up on the West Coast, mm-hmm. right? And so it's always been acting is the first thing. Comedy, you know? right? Well, yeah, I was a stand-up comedian by the time I was nine years old. And I don't know how of a com- much of a common experience that is <laughs> growing up in L.A. Um, but it's something that I kind of fell into. I fell into performing. And uh, I felt, you know, the love of... Uh, of, of applause and getting those laughs and performing. And so, yeah, acting has always been the number one thing for me. And singing has kind of uh, come naturally, um, you know, not to toot my own horn, but, but I toot my horn. Or pluck your own notes on the piano. Of sure. course, when you grew up in that environment, it helps. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is that a lot of that environment kind of dissipated because mm-hmm. uh, my father passed away when I was so young. He was the baby of the family. And so he came, uh, he had about four brothers and uh, they were all in the Yiddish theater. The entire Bernardi family grew up in the Yiddish theater. My grandfather was an actor. My grandmother was an actor and they did the stories of Shalom Aleichem, which, which Fiddler's, Fiddler's based, on, based yeah. on. And so, you know, for three generations, uh, us Bernardis have been dressing up like milkmen and uh, yentas <laughs> and uh, 
it's an incredible legacy to be well, a part of. It's good that you had the theater to do that, and it wasn't some extensive weirdo familial cosplay <laughs> game. So, <laughs> isn't that what it is? Yeah, <laughs> isn't it, isn't, really. Now we have a word for it. But, but by the way, Bernardi is that yeah. a Jewish name or is that a changed name from? It's a changed name from my grandfather. My yeah. grand, the original name was Topf, T O P F. And uh, he uh, was an actor and, uh, in Eastern Europe. And Topf, when translated, means pot, like pot in a kettle. And the uh, kids would write on the marquee Pishtopf, which means piss pot. And, uh, you know, kids having fun. I, I, I've heard he's absolutely fantastic, actually. And basically, the, the manager of the theater said, hey, you know, pay for the sign or change your name. And uh, Harry Houdini, I think, was uh, really popular at the time. So oh. his first name was Beryl. He was, knew he was moving to the United States. He wanted to change it to Bernard. And so he kind of went by Bernard Bernardi for a while, then Beryl Bernardi and... Trying to probably assimilate as Italian, and they looked at him and said, "No, you're Jewish, obviously." Houdini, also <laughs> also another famous Jew with a vowel last. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So do you get cast as Italian? By the way, all Jews and Italians. There's a lot of intercasting. I've talked to Paul Giamatti. Oh no question. About this. Uh, no He's, question. Paul Giamatti, who's I think half Italian, says he has played. 90% of the eth- identified ethnicities he's yeah. played has been Jewish. I mean, that's it. Listen, my father made a career on that. Abe Vigoda. Right? Yeah, uh, he yeah. played Zorba the Greek. Yeah. He did, you know. so, did Zero, so he did what Zero Mostel did. Zero originated – did he originate Tevion? He did, yes. Okay. And then your dad took over right from him? Uh, Luther Adler came on for a few months, but they were really preparing him for the tour. But So my father – took over. Was he ever that. in the show with Zero Mistel at the same time? No, 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 no. But they were in the front together, the Woody Allen film. Right. Yeah. And Which were... was about um, blacklisted screenwriters in Hollywood and Zero Mistel really lived it. And so did my father. He, he my father was blacklisted, yes. Really? Yes. What was that experience like for him? I think he he ran away from the business for a while and got a ranch somewhere in Northern California and uh, took part in the 60s a little bit and yeah. the, the hippie movement a little bit. and. Yeah, it was unbelievably a, a terrifying time. I do have to say that it doesn't seem like a lot of things have changed. I mean, there's, it still seems like there's this, uh, this McCarthyism that's seeming to surge back into our society. And just I, I'm really happy to be telling Fiddler, the story of Fiddler on the Roof now. Because it really speaks to the human condition. Mm-hmm. It's about family. It's about really accepting a people that seem like outsiders. You know, if if the listener isn't intimately familiar with Fiddler on the Roof or hasn't seen it in a while, second act is just total downer. Yes. Uh, most of the good songs are in the first act. <laughs> I, sh- I say good songs. I mean, they're, they're great. Is uh, hmm. Miracle of Miracles in the second act? That's first act. That's first oh yeah. My God. Yeah. Do You yeah. Love Me is in the second act. Th- that is in the second okay, act. Okay, yes, there yes, you go. I knew that. Anna Tefka is in the second act, That's but a right. big downer song. Yes. <laughs> um, which is, a, you know, a great song. But it's a weirdly structured musical. Weird for a musical, not weird for the Jewish experience. Right. Because it just so embraces the reality of wherever the Jews are, they're kicked out of. That's right. And they, the Jews <laughs> in the show more than accept it. Like, this is the way of the world. And right. there's just an acknowledgement and embracing as best they can of loss. Mm-hmm. And th- we don't see that anymore. Right. We don't see that in our society anymore. Mm. I was talking about this the other day. But this is where the framing device comes into play. I mean, how I interpreted it as it doesn't matter if it was it's Danny who is playing this modern Jewish person, mm-hmm. right? Possibly the secular Jew, no, no skull cap. Right. It doesn't matter if he really is a descendant of Tevya. Mm-hmm. It just matters he is a Jew today. Sure. And he's reading a book that 
probably is this is the stories of Shalom Aleichem. Sure. Um, and he's just connecting to his past. Right. Is there a different interpretation? Is it supposed to be, you know, Tevye's great-great-grandson is important you that know, we think uh, of it we, that way? We've talked about it a lot. And I think ultimately it's for the audience member to decide. And uh, I, we've performed it over 175 times now. And it, that moment hits me in, in different ways. Sometimes I, I do look at it as the progeny of, of Tevye. But then... Uh, recently I've been looking at it and realizing that it could very well be the sole survivor uh, genetically yeah. of the entire town of Anatevka. That's what I was – so at the end of the play, they talk about the different places they're going to. And you're saying – or if you know a little bit about history, you're saying to yourself when Tevya and Goldie said, well, we're going to Chicago. Right. They'll live. Mm-hmm. And then when his daughter says, I think we're going to – Warsaw. Warsaw. Yeah. Well, they're going to die. I mean, because I mean, the 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 Nazis will be taking over within right. you know fifteen twenty years of when this play takes place. That's right. So who knows if they made it to America? But as they're listing off equally plausible places to go, mm-hmm. you're doing the accounting in your head. He's going to live. They're going to die. All those question marks that are that are up in the air. I, I think what is beautiful and ultimately what Fiddler is really talking about is the survival of culture. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really inspiring to me and also having my, my, my family legacy and basically having experienced a lot of loss when it comes to that, that, that never really knowing that legacy uh, personally. But what survives is their creative output, their culture, their the word, right? And that's something that uh, Jews talk about all the time is the, that the Torah is the word yeah. and it's the survival of the Torah. And we may be oppressed, we may be uh, come close to annihilation, but as long as the word survives, it's incredibly inspiring. It's and- really important. My great grand uncle is a guy named Schmirky Katsurginsky, who was one of the partisan, partisans of name. Vilnia, okay? <laughs> Lithuania. And yeah. his job, he was the poet. And they would just smuggle out That's right. Torah scrolls. They would just smuggle out the word. They kind of reconstructed the library of the temple in a free place That's as, right. as best as they could. And it's really important. That's right. Because the truth is, you know, loss and, and death, mm-hmm. it happens to all of us. I don't think that the Jews have like a, a monopoly on loss or anything like that. It just, you know, historically you can you can point back and see, okay, they were, you know, thrown out of here, they were thrown out of there, they were came close to annihilation here, and it's a culture that it was developed to survive those kinds of losses and. In a lot of ways, it's a blueprint. It's a roadmap for possibly other cultures, for anyone, really, and continuing to to move on. Yeah. And it's a play uh, explicitly about the survival of a Jewish culture. And in so far as it's so popular, mm-hmm. it represents the survival of the Jewish culture. It's not, that's not just its theme. That's what it's actually living. And every performance you do on Broadway extends that line. I mean, it's... Good job, Michael. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. But, uh, but I, I do. I, I feel that, you know. So you understudy for Tevya. I do. Have you played him on Broadway? I, I On the stage, but not during a performance. I, I've had... Uh, 
many rehearsals, uh, you know, with a stellar Broadway cast. It's unbelievable. Now, I have heard that sometimes what happens, especially during a long run, you sure. can't screw over the audience, but maybe the star says to the guy who he knows is understudying for him and has put in all the time, maybe he says, you know, in a week or two, I might come down with a cold. Right. Have you heard stories like this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Danny's a machine. Yeah. I respect him so much. He, he, he puts his heart out there every single day, twice a day sometimes. He knows his body so well. Sometimes he'll be like, at the end of a show, he'll be like, I'm feeling a little bit of a tickle. Yeah. You know? But yeah, that you get maybe a day notice. Uh-huh. So, or, you know, you hear horror stories of you show up to the theater and they're like, you're on. Yeah. When you bring what you bring to Tevya, sure. are you allowed to freelance a little bit on the bitty, 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 bitty bum part. How much is that written in this <laughs> script? Because I've always heard, you know, I, I saw the movie and I heard bitty, bitty, bitty bum, but Danny, I mean, there are just syllables <laughs> yes, that maybe yeah, start blah, 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 blah. with. It is, you know, it's scatting, right? Yeah, so it's, that's what a Jewish that's what it is. It's like, yeah. you know, Billie Holiday or Duke Ellington, you know, they have, they sound completely different. So it's up, it's Does up it to the artist's the interpretation. I've only seen it once. Does he bitty differently? You know what? I think he might mix it up a little yeah, bit here and there, but he's, he's found such a good bitty bum. So, oh, you know, yeah. why change it? You know, if towards the end of the run, if uh, there are financial troubles, if you're not filling the balcony, you could work in some product placement, you know, mm. bitty, bitty Capri Sun. Capri Sun. Yeah. Right. Ta, uh, da, da, ta, bun? Bun? Some hot yes. dog bun? I don't know. Bitty, bitty, Kosher bitty bun. bun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll pitch it. I'll pitch it as soon as possible. Michael Bernardi <laughs> Mortka, the Mortka. innkeeper. A man who, uh, the fiddler runs through his veins. Mm. He's excellent in the show. If you're in New York and you have the opportunity to see it, I recommend it. Thank you so much. Great to meet you, Michael. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. And now the spiel, Bumbaye. I've been reading a lot about Muhammad Ali. Tomorrow on this show, I will be talking to Dave Zirin, who wrote about Muhammad Ali. He'll be in Louisville for Muhammad Ali's memorial service. Muhammad Ali was a guy who nicknamed himself the greatest, and it came true. He was the most important American athlete of the last 50 years. You have to take into account Babe Ruth. But when you consider the social context and you consider transcending the game, I have to say Muhammad Ali was the most important American athlete in history. We celebrate Muhammad Ali for having defied detractors, for having overcome opposition. But detractors and adversity, I mean, we think of them now like parts or plots of a play, right? They're act two rising obstacles in the face of an eventual glorious obituary. But then at the time, put yourself in the position. These were people who really hated him, who really thought he was wrong, who really were given a lot of credence by a really large number of reasonable people at the time. So I was thinking, who among the living today, will be remembered as Ali was. Not someone who was great in their field like Prince, that happens all the time. Not someone who's remembered fondly as an important American. Any president who dies will get that treatment. But who's going to be treated as a hero, a marvel, a secular saint, 
a person who transcended his field and raised up his people, and in doing so, raised up all the American people. Here's my nominee. I think it will be Barack Obama. To some of you, this might seem obvious, but to others, it might seem impossible. Not so much that you disagree with the assessment, but you just don't think we'll get to a place where a vast majority of society comes around to heap garlands on this divisive figure. Yes, of course, he'll be given credit as the first black president. Even his detractors say, it's good that we have a black president. But he has so many critics now. And yes, he has a rising approval rating. But remember the last election? Any association with Barack Obama was enough to lose you a Senate race. And yet, I think his programs, though not perfect, will endure. I predict that in 50 years, it's really possible that we will have to remind our children how for decades we thought it was okay just to leave millions of people uninsured. I think that we'll look back on his stewardship of the economy as responsible, as leading to greater prosperity than our peer countries, as leading to greater prosperity than we might have had otherwise. Cuba relations will be normalized. Iran, I really don't know about Iran, but it's likely things will get better, or at least Iran will remain without nuclear weapons for another two decades. And I think he'll have the most successful post-presidency of anyone, free from the need to use philanthropy to burnish the credentials of a spouse, that's what Bill Clinton did, seemingly unobsessed with nest feathering, also what Bill Clinton did, and he won't have a taste for clearing brush, so that alone will make him surpass George W. Bush, who has receded after leaving the White House. He'll have a head start on Carter due to his young age and also the goodwill that he will immediately engender as a two-term president. Remember, he won't have the association on him for his last race having been a defeat, his worst defeat. That's what happened with Carter. We're seven years into an eight-year administration. We haven't even had any real scandals. The White House seems the opposite of dysfunctional. The quality that most of his critics abhor that he uses executive orders on issues like immigration and guns can be seen exactly the other way. That even in the face of a recalcitrant Congress, he kept trying to get things done. And of course, his personal qualities of decency and good humor, never underestimate that. Look, I could be wrong. I have admitted on the show to being an optimist. But there's another factor that I believe makes us think that it will be impossible for nearly everyone to come together to remember Barack Obama the way they did Ali, as this heroic, really heroic figure. Oh, sure, he'll get a respectful send-off. He'll get gushing among partisans. He'll get charitable moderates saying things that make themselves look like fair-minded people. That all happened with Reagan when he died. But I really think Obama will go beyond that because of this one thing. His field is politics. And in politics, we tend to privilege rather stupid counter-arguments. I know why that is. It's because in politics, what keeps score are elections, and in elections, the opinion of every voter, no matter how stupid or how smart, counts the same. It's recorded. That's the score. If score were kept on Ali this way, everyone in the 1960s who said, how dare you change your name to Cassius Clay, which was most people, that would count. That would count for more than it should. That would be set in stone. And we would say, oh, yes, but the majority of people were against Cassius Clay changing his name to Ali. Now that doesn't matter. The rightness and righteousness of that decision is what matter, not the opinion of the people at the time about that. 
decision. In sports, and Ali was a sportsman, there is a score. Greatness is empirically settled. Now take the arts. In arts, the elites render verdicts, really meaningful verdicts. Popularity counts, but the assessment of those who really know, those assessments are given more credence than your average Ed Hardy shirt-wearing Yahoo. Even civic leaders, even moral crusaders, are judged by something more meaningful than votes. Ali was revered because on the big issues, he was right. If Vietnam had been a good war, like World War II, and Ali still refused service, his story would be a lot different. Yeah, he'd be the guy who stood up to the government. He'd be the guy who trusted his own moral guidance. But he'd still be, we'd still think, oh, he was wrong to sit out that war. Since he was right about Vietnam, we say that Ali was a man of conviction rather than a shirker of responsibility. And so for Obama to be remembered this way, it will have to have turned out that most of his opinions are right. But that's exactly what I think will happen. And in time, Obama will be seen less as a politician who won a couple elections, yet at the same time lost state houses in the Senate during his tenure. And in time, he'll become to be seen as a statesman, a man of real, tangible achievement, and ultimately a great leader. And that's it for today's show. To life, to life, l'chaim, to Mary Wilson, producer of The Gist. And as chief content officer, Bowers is the boss of her. Drink l'chaim, to life, to life, to liktai, executive producer for Slate. He has a way of confusing us when he's producing us. Drink to liktai, to life. God would like us to be joyful and to be contented and forgiving too. Thanks for listening to the gist Doom Peru de Peru. Do Peru. I was reading about your dad on Wikipedia and yeah. there's so much about the roles he played that are so of a different time. Here's listen to this description, you probably know this. In 1970, Bernardi was the lead in the CBS sitcom Arnie, Bernardi starred for two years as someone plucked from the loading dock of a flange company to become an executive. That's right. I don't know what a flange is. <laughs> you know what? I don't know what a flange is either. <laughs> I mean, in 1970, it's like, look, we got to sell this to middle America. Yeah. What do we do? What, what do we make him somewhat relatable? He'll be a flange worker. I mean, this may upset dock. all the flange workers that are listening to your show, but I honestly, I just have no... I, listen, I went to art school. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've been dressing up in tights my entire life. I'm sorry. I don't know what a flange is. I apologize. <laughs>